Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Transparency in the healthcare space is driving us towards significant medical advancements. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we chat with Zach Weinberg, co-founder, president, and COO of Flatiron Health, as we explore his transition from food delivery and ad tech startups to one focus on healthcare, and Flatiron's novel ability to connect oncologists, academics, hospitals, and more. Thank you so much for coming in on this Tuesday. Um, we're going to talk healthcare and tech, and of course, those two topics are top of mind for everyone. Healthcare, obviously, because of the news, coronavirus, and also because of the rising cost of healthcare, which, um, of course, leads to various conversations about the political response to that, whether it is getting rid of Obamacare or coming up with Medicare for all. And of course, tech. Tech is our future. Cornell is trying to prepare its students for tech. It's training its students for the future of tech. And whatever healthcare looks like in the future, tech will shape it. So that brings us to the intersection of healthcare and tech and to tonight's very timely conversation with Zach Weinberg. He's co-founder, president, and COO of Flatiron Health. And Jonathan mentioned your co-founder, Nat Turner. Um, you guys met in college at UPenn, and yep. you kind of knew early on that you wanted to do the same thing. You wanted to start companies. You founded three companies. Flatiron Health is your third one. Yep. Um, talk a little bit about the first two. The first one didn't last, and that was like a food delivery business. And the second one was a raging success. Yeah, I, the, we, we started the, I always think like when you're in college, you, you start these, what I think of as like college businesses, which is really only related to like food, drinking, or, or <laughs> sleeping kind of. Uh, anyway, yeah, we, we, back, this is 2004, I met Nat in a class at school. Um, we were both at Wharton, so it was pretty atypical for Wharton people to not be interested in finance because it really is like a finance-driven institution, or at least it was. Um, and you yeah. guys were neither of you were interested in finance, not professionally. I mean, I think there was an appreciation for like you need to know how the numbers work, but mm -hmm. not as like a career. I didn't want to spend my days in in Excel, and and to be clear, like some people really do and, and are and are quite good at it. Um, so yeah, the first idea was online food ordering. Uh, I think we were just like 10 years too early and <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we were doing, we were faxing orders to restaurants because the infrastructure, like most of the restaurants didn't have computers. Yeah. Uh, and in many cases didn't necessarily have anything but phone lines. So the infrastructure to start that business just wasn't there. Um, but it was a really good eye-opening experience to doing sales. So I was, you know, going around the country selling restaurants uh, to thinking about margin structure, just because like our cost structure to do this was much higher than we expected because of things like fax machines. Um, and we got to know each other, obviously, through that experience. Uh, it didn't work because of all those, all those silly reasons. Um, went back to school and then took an internship mm -hmm. in, via a, a person we had met in a company in, in San Francisco. Uh, and then that internship turned into this idea that became Invite Media, which we started as the second business in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, sold that to Google in 2010. Stayed and you sold it to Google for $81 million. You were all of what, 24 years old at the time? 
23. 23 years old. Oh, okay, excuse me. Um, <laughs> so clearly you had this exit at a really young age. How did that open things up for you or change your perspective on what you thought you wanted to do? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. So obviously it's a lot of money, but um, first of all, we didn't own like a giant percentage of this business. So for anyone thinking I walked away with like $41 million, it's not true. Um, I, I think we felt like there was a lot of stuff we just didn't know how to do. I, I remember getting to Google and kind of eating like humble pie for a little bit because we thought, you know, you're 23, whatever, you sell this business, and you're like, oh, we're really good at this. Uh, and then you get to Google and you're like, oh, got it. That's how a real company is run. Mm -hmm. um, because they were 35,000 people, we were 50, now they're 100, but we were 52, and they were better run than we were, um, which is crazy to think because of the complexity. And I think that was like a really, it was less about the exit and more about the time spent at Google seeing how like a real professional business was run um, and learning some of the tips and tricks, if you will, that we wanted to fix in, in the next business. So I think that was actually probably the biggest um, win for us was having that kind of experience professionally. Mm -hmm. And then because we had the exit, we found that when we were starting the second business, things were just easier. And that allowed us, honestly, the best thing it did on the operating side was people would take meetings with us. So we were able to do what was probably 10 years of research in like two years uh, in terms of getting into healthcare because our hit rate when we would get an intro or we would send a cold email or, or make a phone call was much higher than People if, took your calls and people read your emails and replied to you. Pretty much. And, you know, we learned how to use the like, hey, we sold a company to Google and, we, you know, if you have it, you might as well use it. And, and I think that was really useful for us. Um, but, we, you know, I think we felt like while at Google that, all right, I, I feel like I've got a much better handle on this than we did at the first one, yeah. so let's swing for something that's more complicated and more interesting and that, you know, it's gonna be hard to get off the ground, but if it works, it, it should work in a big way. So we were, our risk appetite went up. Okay, so you could have done anything, really. You could have pursued any line of business. You could have launched a bro app if you wanted to, but you decide to tackle healthcare, and right. I mean, that's pretty big and intractable. Why did you set your sights on healthcare? I mean, were, do you have some personal connection with it? So we do, although I will say that um, we had this more macro goal, which was we wanted to be in an industry where like three really smart people coming out of Stanford, computer science, wouldn't be better than us. Because while Nat and I are technical and I can sit and chat with software engineers all day, I'm not gonna be the best software engineer. There are people who are much, much better than I am. Um, but what we were able to do, at least we thought our like special skill was, was translating software into complex businesses. So we were always kind of enterprise people. Um, and so we wanted to find something that was complicated, not just from a technical perspective, because we felt like that would give us an edge. And very quickly we, we realized healthcare was one of like three places where that was true. Um, Nat had a young cousin, um, who had been kind of misdiagnosed a few times with a very rare form of, of leukemia. Uh, and he was going through that at the time. And so there was definitely like this pull into healthcare. And then I think once we got to understand oncology in particular, mm -hmm. um, the complexity just like explodes. Like you get into healthcare, and you're like, okay, this is really complicated. And then you get into oncology, you're like, oh shit, oncology is way more complicated than just regular healthcare. 
And that was really exciting to us because it felt like a puzzle. And when you can take the puzzle with the, the mission, mm -hmm. um, I think that's like a really powerful thing. And we, we, every other idea we had, we had some FinTech ideas and we had some other stuff and we just didn't, I just didn't find the motivation to work on them, mm -hmm. having you know maybe done like three months of homework in, in oncology, and then three months turned to eighteen months. Um, and there's something you're just you're excited about delving into and spending a lot of time, yes, learning the micros and the ins and outs of of it. Yeah. Um, what about the timing when it comes to oncology? I mean, there's a lot a lot of companies are out there trying to look for some new cancer beating drug. Sure. Um, how did that play into your decision to focus on oncology? I think some of the complexity we found was actually this like giant growing number of new therapies. That was one of the things we, we learned. We're like, oh, got it. There's going to be a whole wave of new oncology drugs, be it what they'll call targeted agents, so drugs that are targeted to a specific genetic mutation, uh, or immunotherapies, which are drugs that tend to turn the immune system on, so different ways of attacking cancer. Um, how do we know how these things actually work mm -hmm. after they get out of the clinical trial? And if you went back 15, 20 years, that question was not as important because there just weren't enough things to measure. And when we saw the pipeline that was coming and still coming, I mean, if you look across the next 10 years, I think you're gonna see more cancer drug launches than we've ever seen before. It, was, it felt like a really good why now. Mm -hmm. um, I think most companies have very clear why now. Uh, something that happens today that just couldn't have happened a few years ago, some external thing changed, like our food delivery thing, right? All of a sudden, people have computers in the restaurant and everyone's carrying around a phone in their pocket. Now it's possible where it wasn't before. Um, so we felt like the trends were kind of in this direction of complexity, mm -hmm. in this case, more therapies. Um, and that gave us some kind of like leading indicators that, okay, if we solve this real world data problem, there'll be more customers in the future than there are today. Okay, that so was the idea. it was like a perfect storm of everything coming together. Yeah, we definitely, I, we were always looking for logical reasons why we found this problem that no one else had done. Mm -hmm. Because we're not smarter than other people and we're not in the industry, so why are we the only ones seeing this? And I think usually the answer is, well, other people have seen it, but they saw it a few years ago, and they kind of came to the conclusion that it wasn't interesting, and they were probably right at the time, yeah. but it's no longer true. Right. And if you could, articulate why that was the case, then all of a sudden, you know, it was like, okay, I got why we, we've seen this. It's just because we've, we're seeing it at a different time uh, with maybe we haven't seen the, the previous issues. Okay, so you wanted to solve healthcare. You wanted to solve looking for drugs to treat cancer, different kinds of cancer. This is a big, big, big problem. What is the specific problem that your company, Flatiron Health, is solving. Yeah, I, I, would, I will say when we got into oncology, we didn't come into it with any preconceived notion about what we wanted to do. Okay, you just knew oncology something. It was like, where's Waldo of finding business ideas? So, you know, we spent 18, a lot of times people think like these startup ideas come overnight or like someone has some aha moment in the shower or something. But you're like feeling your way in the dark to it. Totally in the dark uh, for 18 months. And this was a full-time job, this is all we did. So it wasn't like, you know, 6 to 9 p.m. on Thursdays. It was Monday to Sunday, every day, going around a lot of trips. We would fly around the country meeting oncologists. We would meet folks in pharma and, and experts and other startup leaders and just like pepper them with questions. And we did it for 18 months. So we're talking like four or five, 600 meetings before we really found this thesis that, you know, eventually what you find is you start pitching. You, you go from like, tell me about your problems to, hey, I've got this idea. 
And eventually the feedback on, hey, I got this idea, becomes, oh, that's actually kind of interesting from in the beginning when it's usually like, nah, it's not going to work and here's why. And so you can feel it. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to pitch it a lot. Mm -hmm. And you have to be objective about the fact that when someone says it's a bad idea, maybe they're right. And you, know, you have to like kind of twist it and twist it. So that was 18 months. Um, and essentially the problem we found was there, if you think of like the clinical trial for a cancer therapy, um, there's a set number of human beings in oncology, tends to be somewhere between 50 and 400 uh, people who are in this clinical trial. And it's a very well-designed experiment. So it's the right way to do it, to get through FDA approval. And it essentially tells you objectively with uh, clear statistics that this drug ha shows benefit uh, over standard of care, meaning what you would get if you didn't get that new therapy. And then the drug goes into the real world. And it just doesn't perform in the same way that it did in the trial because the populations are different, the conditions are different. Somebody once described it to me as like the miles per gallon measure on a car where, you know, Toyota tells you it's like 32 miles a gallon, but the way they actually tested that was in a factory, windows up, air conditioning off, no air resistance. So it's like the perfect spot. And then, you know, you drive the car outside and obviously it doesn't perform as well. So there were a lot of these questions about what happens afterwards. Not to replace the trial, but to under, like to, almost to contextualize it. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we heard that problem, and that was one theme. And then the other theme we heard was this whole buzz around like essentially electronic health records. This idea that we had spent you know, hundreds of millions of billions of dollars installing electronic health records. How come we can't use, I, I kept hearing this phrase like, use the data, mm -hmm. which doesn't really mean anything. Um, but what we realized people, what they meant by that over time was they wanted to query it. They wanted to ask questions of it. However, most of the data was captured in formats that were untenable, like PDFs, essentially, Word documents, uh, images. Things you can't search. Things you, you, not only can you not search them, they're not structured in any way. So you can't say like, you know, show me the number of people who have this biomarker because it's written in nine different ways and it's in PDFs all over the place. So that was a problem when I, when we saw that problem, we're like, okay, I know that one because I'd seen it before in, at Google. Um, and we had, this, we had this hypothesis that you could solve it with humans mm -hmm. uh, and that everybody historically had tried to solve these like messy data problems using computers only. And our understanding of, of CS, if you will, was like that was never going to work at the level of quality we felt like you needed. And so our little like aha moment, if you will, was there are all these drugs we need to measure. There's all this data that seems to be like the right data to potentially measure it, but everybody thinks it's impossible because of all the data is in PDFs. And I was like, you know, it's not more complicated than that. And so we had this like idea of like, let's just build an army of nurses to go through the PDFs and let's build software for those nurses to do it really fast and really high quality. Mm -hmm. Kind of like private mechanical Turk. Uh, and we did like some napkin math, you know, how many nurses, how many, how much we have to pay them per hour, what's it going to cost, what can we, like literally on a napkin. Um, and I did a little bit of math and it was like, okay, it seems like this could work. And uh, that was it. And then we start, you know, now obviously there was a lot of work after that, but at that point in time when we had gotten to that thesis and the math seemed to work, we felt, okay, at least our core logic seems sound. Okay. You know, maybe we can't get the data, or maybe we can't sell the data, and all these other like operational problems, but at least the idea of like, if you get it, you should be able to make money on it. Mm -hmm. And not that making money is the world's end all be all, but if you can't make money, you can't build the business. 
So. Okay. At one point, though, you considered going the nonprofit route when it comes to. I don't think this, so. No. Yeah. I mean, like maybe some people toss it around, but. Why was that not tenable here? Because you can't recruit good people. Like you just. You have to pay for talent. You have to pay for talent, and one of the ways that a startup pays for talent is in equity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially when you're in New York City and you're competing against places like this and Google and what other, you know, you just can't compensate people at the level that Google does. So you need to offer them something they can't get there. One of it is scope and job. The other is equity. Mm-hmm. And equity in a nonprofit is not worth anything. So right. unfortunately, the nonprofit idea didn't seem tenable because of the talent issue. Okay. Um, and I actually fundamentally believe that is true of almost all um, nonprofits in a sense, which is like, it's really hard unless you have a giant foundation behind it to recruit the best people because the compensation gap is very, very big. Has gotten out of whack. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about how Flatiron makes its money now because your customer is not patients. Correct. It's not you and I, it's not people. Who are your customers? Who are you, who are you paying? Who are you getting money from? Yeah, so our paying customers are essentially biotech and biopharma. So folks that- Companies. Yes. Uh, folks that build cancer medicines. So uh, names you've heard of like Pfizer and Merck and Roche, and then probably some names you haven't heard of that are much smaller companies, um, all of whom have giant R&D efforts to develop cancer drugs and have a set of questions that they want to understand and people want to understand about their drugs in terms of how they perform, uh, that historically their ability to get those questions answered was relatively limited outside of a clinical trial. And so you know, you can't run indefinite amounts of clinical trials. Each one is like a few hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. So this idea of alternative data to answer some of those questions felt um, viable. So this is in addition to the clinical trials Correct. that they do run. Okay, yeah, so they, now they just have more information. Yeah, we're not here to replace the clinical trial. I think um, there's some good statistics reasons why you need the randomization in the trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are then subsequent questions that you, it's not feasible to answer in a clinical trial, and we can get at them in, in, in a high quality way. What's a question that you answer for drug companies that they can't get from a clinical trial? Show me performance of patients in the real world who are excluded from the study. So uh, patients with HIV is okay. a really good example, actually. So uh, most cancer clinical trials will exclude you if you have a- HIV or any other um, significant comorbidity. Chronic. Yeah, exactly. Any sort of like really bad chronic disease that might affect how the drug works in your body. And that's just how this works because they want to understand the true effect of the drug so they exclude folks like that in the study. Also, like um, patients that are really old mm-hmm. uh, tend to be excluded as well because of concerns about their durability of, of actually taking the drug. So then the drug goes into the real, real world, and those patients actually do get it. So the question becomes, well, does it, does it work? Uh, and how well does it work? And there's no way to run that trial, right? So it's going to take 10 years and, and cost hundreds of millions of dollars, so they're not going to do it. Um, so we help to answer those kind of questions. We, we did a giant project on uh, male breast cancer because mm-hmm. uh, it's so rare, it's really hard to find. So you can't run a trial in that, in that population. Um, things like that where the, the trial mechanism to go and get the answer is, is tough or difficult to do. Um, Uneconomic. Yeah, economically and sometimes operationally. Like mm. you just can't find enough of these people. Uh, I guess that ends up being economic at mm-hmm. the end of the day. 
Um, so those are the kind of questions we tend to focus on. We also help to think about, I've got this drug that I'm building, or I'm developing, to use the term, and it kind of works, but when I run this trial, it's going to go up against essentially what is like a control arm. So these are patients who get standard of care, who don't get this drug. And so you're going, all right, am I going to run like a $500 million trial and I'm not 100% sure like what the outcome is going to be, so can I model it? Right. Can I try and take a guess at like how well the drug is going to perform versus the real world? So the question is, well, how's the real world going to perform? And that's one of the questions we can help. Uh, we can help answer because we're kind of watching the real world care on a continuous basis. Okay, well, let's talk about the real world for a moment here because certainly um, cancer is a real world problem, but right now in this moment, uh, in certain infectious diseases are a real world problem as well. Um, I want to get your thoughts on coronavirus. <laughs> it, you say you like tackling these big, intractable, intractable complicated industry problems. I mean, within healthcare, Obviously, coronavirus is, is that at the moment. There's a lot of it that's still unknown. We're still trying to get our hands around it. But I'd like to hear about how you're thinking about this outbreak. Oh, man. Because um, I've just been like talking about it with my wife for the last, every day for the last few weeks. She's like, so tired of me talking about it. Um, so share some of your thoughts with us. So look, I think I'll give you some good and some bad. Uh, it looks like the mortality rates are two-ish percent. It seems like- Is that like high or low? It's all about perspective, right? Like compared to the flu, it's a little worse. Compared to the bubonic plague, it's like not that bad. Okay. Uh, so, Good perspective. You know, I don't know, it depends which angle you come at it from. Um, it seems to affect uh, older patients significantly more than younger patients. Um, if you look at the death rate, it's significantly higher in older patients, and especially those that have um, chronic disease or, or comorbid conditions. Now, part of this is like, do you believe the Chinese data? And uh, maybe. Um, I think the interesting data will come out of Italy uh, mm -hmm. and South Korea and Japan, which are first world countries that don't lie about their numbers, basically. Um, so I think we're, we're about to see. Mm -hmm. And you know, the likely situation is that it comes here and a lot of people get it and most people are fine. That's the actual situation. Like I think a lot of people will get it in the United States. It will spread very quickly. Everybody will be generally fine and a very small subset of the patient population won't be, just like some people who get the flu. Um, so is it, it, I mean, when it comes down to it, is it going to be any different than how it's uh, tr being transmitted in China? I mean, you could make the same argument that a lot of people in China got it and maybe not all that many people are dying from it. I mean, a pretty big number in the, in the area that it started in have, mm -hmm. have died and we've got some time. Mm -hmm. um, again, I also don't believe their numbers. So um, not that they're lying like completely, but they definitely exaggerate uh, to make themselves look good, right? And I also think the Chinese have a much stronger ability to just like shut stuff down that we don't really have here. Um, with that said, we have a much better infrastructure for treatment. Uh, and so I think our infrastructure is better as a patient. For sure. I'd rather be here. Um, I think I'll give you two other thoughts. One is the, our federal government has no idea what it's doing. Um, and that's not, shouldn't come as a shock to anybody that's like turned on the TV. Um, I think biotech could have like a really interesting role in this, that there are a lot of very, very smart scientists all mm -hmm. across the country who have like dropped what they're doing 
and are looking for both treatment and vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wouldn't shock me if we see a mildly effective vaccine, kind of like the flu vaccine that's like 60% effective, um, and then some treatments that are also like mildly effective. So they're not gonna cure you, but they'll reduce the symptom time, things like that. I think that seems reasonable. This idea that it's not gonna come to the United States to me is, is ridiculous. Why did so many people believe it for so long? Because humans are really bad at understanding math. And like, it's just kind of math, right? Like it, you know, it, you get it, you affect, you infect like 2.7 people, give or take on average. And the bigger challenge is you don't show symptoms until after like maybe 10 to 14 days in some people. And through that entire time, it seems to me, to not to me, to be like you are, um, you can transmit the virus and so you're contagious. That's not, you can't stop that. That's impossible, right? Because you got one person can infect like 400 people without them even knowing they've got it. So that, that seems like it's just wildfire. Um, the reality is it's probably just not gonna be that bad in terms of like the actual virus itself. You know, it doesn't have the mortality rate that some of these other things have. So pros and cons, if you will. Um, it's gonna be interesting to see the one thing I was talking to my wife about was like the heat. And I, I hate to... Because we're in winter right now and eventually... Yeah, theoretically viruses don't uh, spread as much or, or do as much damage when it's warm. Uh, and you could... Because like flu season goes away, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, we don't know. The only case, the only place that seems to have gotten some cases that's really warm is Singapore. Uh, and so like you'd kind of want to watch Singapore a little bit, see what happens. I'm just not convinced that Singapore is like predictive of anything because it's really tiny and they're extremely good and they have like a very, very good healthcare system and they're smart. And so, you know, they just have like all the things going for them that I think they can do when you have a country that's like the size of, you know, Manhattan. Um, in a country in the United, like the United States, it's just, it's different game, you right. know, so. Uh, People are not gonna take um, being told that they can't go out or do something the way that Perhaps you can Yeah, what are you gonna more. do, like shut the GW bridge down for like three months? Like I don't think that's gonna happen, uh, so we'll let's, see. Let's talk about the economics of coming up with a treatment for something like coronavirus, a pandemic, because Gilead Sciences, if anyone's heard of this company, um, the shares rallied, what, four and a half percent yesterday in, during a big market sell-off, and this is because um, someone at the, was it WHO? Yeah, one of yeah, them. Had yeah, had said that the company's uh, remdesivir one of its treatments is in clinical trials right now to treat the virus in China, and they believe that this is the one treatment that has any hope of efficacy. However, analysts, and you know, we talk about financial markets all day long at Bloomberg, an analyst at Bank of America says that if successful, this drug, remdesivir, would only result in a one-time revenue of about $2.5 billion at most, which is, according to the analyst, not much in the way of lasting, meaningful upside to the bottom line. So. Ultimately, it might not be in Gilead's uh, financial interest to spend too much time developing a treatment for coronavirus, even if it's good for humanity. Well, Gilead, this is a drug that already exists. So in their case, the development part of it is, is, just, done. is kind of like just running some trials that I'm sure they'll get government subsidies to run, as, the, as they should, by the way, because um, of the speed. So I think it's kind of like a no-brainer for them mm -hmm. um, because the drug is in market. Uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about like the math in this specific area. What I could tell you is maybe the, I'll give you the bull case of like why it could be really big 
is maybe this becomes like another flu and it just comes back every year, maybe in a slightly milder form. And so it's just like a thing that happens and then therefore there's some vaccine related opportunities and some diagnostic related opportunities. Like the flu vaccine that we get every year. You got it. Or uh, what, what's the flu one? Flo, Flovent? Flu, not Flovent. Tamiflu? Tamiflu, um, which actually Roche makes. Which owns your company. Yeah, so that's a good business for them. And mm -hmm. you know, so I could see that being a potential outlet for it. Um, it's so early, like I don't think anybody really knows and you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I do think it's pretty remarkable like how much, how many smart people are working, and scientists are mm -hmm. working on this right now. It's, it's, it's crazy. How would you tackle testing for this virus? <sighs> because one of the big criticism right, criticisms right now is that no one really knows how to diagnose this and the parameters for how to diagnose it keep shifting every day. I mean, do you point a temperature gun at someone's forehead and, and call it a day after that? Yeah, I mean, even then, like, you know, it can come later. Um, you've got to set some threshold for, you know, severity of, of uh, symptoms that you test somebody. Part of the problem is the diagnostic itself, like the actual kit that they're using to mm -hmm. diagnose this stuff seems to have problems with it. That's not my area of expertise, so I couldn't tell you why that is the case. I, I wouldn't want to comment on it. Um, but if, like, the physical thing you're using to say positive or negative doesn't work that well, and you can't make a lot of them, then you're in trouble. And that's a problem yeah. to begin and with. And that's the current case in the US at least. Is there a better way to come up with finding effective therapies to outbreaks of, of new, new pandemics, new infectious diseases? Because in the case of remdesivir, for instance, they're using it in the field. Yeah. And it's pretty chaotic right now. I mean, like they're just kind of throwing things against the wall and seeing if it sticks. Yeah. Um, you're racing against time at the same time. I mean, you know, look, Maybe you give someone like the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, just some sort of, um, I, I think, it's, like I, I didn't know this coming into healthcare because I was in tech first and everyone has this like idea of pharma as like these big, bad, evil people uh, and they're not. They're really good people with really bad incentive structures wrapped around them. Okay. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be like, it's not their fault, but the reality is like, welcome to the system. So they have to be rational economic actors. If you're mad at pharma, change the incentives. Don't yell at pharma. Uh, so I, when I've met scientists and I've met people working at, not just Roche, but, but lots of these biotechs, and they're always bad actors, by the way. There's always like 5% of these people are terrible people. But most are really, really good. And they want to do the right thing. They really do, especially when you get to the scientist level. So I don't think, they're, you, don't, I don't think you need to do much. I think it's just, you know, thank folks for working on it. And if they get something that works decently well, like show them respect and, and give them uh, some kudos and, you know, something around that. I, I think that's actually enough to get people to want to do this. Mm -hmm. That in the short run, in the long run, you'll need some economic incentive. But in the short run, people want to solve this problem for sure. Uh, do you, have you seen any system, healthcare system that incentivizes uh, pharma scientists the right way, the best way? Well, the European system, uh, just on drug pricing specifically, is a different model, right? So um, to get into just this for like one second, in the United States, if you develop, I'll just use cancer as the example. Sure. Uh, if you develop a cancer therapy uh, that, that works in the eyes of the FDA, remember FDA doesn't look at price. So FDA just wants to know, is this better than the standard of care? So if I allow this drug to be used in this specific population, are the people who get it 
uh, going to get, in cancer it's live longer, mm -hmm. um, yes or no. And essentially that's the answer you get. And then you have to price it. And in the US, the single largest payer is Medicare. So it's government payer, especially in oncology because people skew older, mm -hmm. right? So I think it's like 55 or even 60% of cancer patients are Medicare patients. And Medicare is not allowed to negotiate the price of the drug legally. Couldn't tell you why, but there's a rule, some law from you know, wherever ages ago says Medicare can't negotiate because that would be like rationing care. So pharma companies, they just pick a big number, right? They can charge whatever they want. Effectively, like you can kind of charge whatever you want within you know, the New York Times writing an article and like giant you know, uh, hoopla about this and, and negative effects that are more social than they are um, you know, like structured. So that's our system. Um, and that's why you see prices go up over time because there's really no like negative ramifications of doing it because people aren't negotiating these prices at any real serious level. By the way, this is the company I work for, so I'll probably get fired for, like, for, sharing, this? for sharing this. Uh, but, you know, whatever. And in, in, the, in Europe, and in Ger I'll use Germany as, as like one example, there is a budget, and they will negotiate, and they will negotiate based on the effectiveness of the drug. So they will price it based on this thing called quality-adjusted life years, which is essentially saying we value one year of quality life mm -hmm. of a German national citizen of like X number of euros, and I think it's like 80,000, I can't remember the exact number, but there's a number. And then they'll look at the data and go, how many months of quality adjusted life does this therapy actually provide? Mm -hmm. And then that's their target price, and then they'll go after it. And if pharma doesn't agree, they won't pay for it. And therein lies this like funny little trade-off of medicine, which is if you want prices to go down, which many of us, I would say all of us, kind of want conceptually, it also means you don't get everything. Right. Right? And you've got to make that trade-off. And so the Europeans uh, have said, okay, we're going to make that trade-off, and we won't always have the latest and greatest, but we're going to operate within a budget. And that's their system. And our system, obviously, isn't that way. So if you have cancer and you have great insurance, the U.S. is the best place to be because, like, we're going to pay for everything. How long does that last? Uh, you know, what's the effect on, on people's incomes, things like that, I think is a really interesting question. But it's more of like an ethical question than anything else. And I think this idea that like... But it's can, available out there at a price. Yeah, it's just really expensive. Um, a lot of times like European countries will get them later, mm -hmm. some of these new drugs, because they're spending time to negotiate mm -hmm. or they're waiting for more data. And so, you know, you can't have rational drug prices without a little bit of rationing. It just doesn't work. And we haven't figured that out yet. No, because we as a society are very uncomfortable saying someone's life is worth this. And I, I don't have any opinion on that. Like maybe some people agree with that, maybe they don't. But if you pick a number, then you can back out what the drug is worth. If you're uncomfortable picking a number. You won't even go there. Is, it, is someone's life worth $100,000 a year or a million dollars a year? And I think you could make very rational arguments about either of those. Um, and so it becomes a little bit more of like an ethical yeah. question or a cultural question. Um, now, obviously, no one will ever talk about this because it's too complicated and doesn't it doesn't like sound bite well. Um, but I do think that's that's the trade off we're going to have to face at some point mm -hmm. because look, there are some drugs that are worth three million dollars. I mean, we cured hepatitis C, right? Like that's in, that's insane. So this disease that essentially like most people used to die from is effectively cured. 
Uh, now that is a very expensive set of, of therapies, but that seems worth it to me. Like I think that's a justified expense. You know, then there are these other drugs that you know kind of work in some people a little bit, but uh, they are also priced extremely high. It's just like who's the judge, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in the U.S. we seem to be very comfortable with allowing the federal government, rightly so sometimes, to make those decisions. So we pay a lot. So there are some roadblocks that are just kind of set up in the way the system is. And there's also this perception, rightly or wrongly, that healthcare is this slow-moving market where deals and just any kind of, I don't know, progress seems to take a long time because a lot of different people have to sign off on it. There's a ton of stakeholders involved. Yeah. Uh, payers and providers are really slow to adopt technology. Yeah. Have you found this to be the case? Yes, and I will give you maybe like two very specific reasons why this is, I, I believe. Um, one is somebody's expense is someone else's income. So when we say like save money from the healthcare system, mm. from who? It's not like the money's just sitting there in a pile, right? It's going to people who have jobs. So every time you try and do something that seems rational, you are effectively taking money away from some, from some stakeholder. And so, you know, uh, someone's got to lose, right? And, and no one I, wants to give up anything. No one wants to give anything up, right? And the hospital lobby and the pharma lobby are very, very powerful. And so it's tough you know, to say, well, we, should, uh, we shouldn't pay as much for X, Y, and Z because that's somebody's income on the other side, mm -hmm. and they tend to have a very loud opinion about that, rightfully so. So I think that's like a fundamental dynamic in healthcare, which is like the money flows between stakeholders, and so if you're trying to pull stuff out, you know, something's gonna happen from a job standpoint um, and from an earning standpoint. That's one. The other one I would say is like um, a lot of healthcare starts with the physician, and the hospital and then kind of goes from there, right? Like if you're sick, the first thing you do is go to the doctor. Uh, and then you get drugs and treatment and, and imaging and all sorts of stuff. Um, the, the market for physicians and like hospitals broadly, um, I would argue they are monopolies. And we don't treat them as such because they're hospitals, so they're nonprofit and they're good guys and they- They're and helping they, us. They're helping us, right? Except they, they, just, they just hired like 70% of the doctors in the area and now they control pricing. Um, Non-profit doesn't mean like non-revenue. Mm. So I think this idea that like the hospitals are the good guys is wrong. Uh, I think the hospitals are, are part of the problem and not that they're bad people, it's that their economic incentives are broken and they, their job is to like grow the pie of money that they can spend on care. So the best way to do that is to hire all the doctors and then raise prices to the insurance company. And the insurance company has no other opportunities because there's no other doctors. So therein lies, that's a monopoly in my opinion. Um, we just don't realize it because we're used to monopolies at like a national scale, mm -hmm. right? We're used to thinking about like Microsoft or Google because everybody uses them. But healthcare is regional. So if I'm in Connecticut, and you know, I want to go see the doctor, I'm not gonna to drive to Maine. So my market is like, you know, fifty miles from my from my house. And I just don't don't think we regulate the hospitals in, in the right way. Mm -hmm. And that's the source of a, a lot of the problems in, in my opinion. I just don't think we should let hospitals consolidate a market more than X percent. Definitely no more than fifty percent. And maybe it should be lower than that, because then people compete. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's one thing we've learned in this country, it's that like capitalism takes prices down. And so 
let's like get a little competition in there, and like you'll probably see prices come down a little bit. So, yeah, I would. I, I think hospitals are are bad actors um, in a lot of these situations for good reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem people have is they can't separate out like the actions of an economic actor from their like the human part mm -hmm. of it from uh, the doctor who takes care of them. Yeah, that's not a bad person. I guarantee you it's not a bad person. But the system around them is set up poorly. Mm -hmm. um, so there, you know, those are definitely two reasons why things move so slowly. Because if you're a monopoly, mm -hmm. you have no push to like do things quickly. Right. You're not going to lose customers. All right. You can take your time. Right. Um, backing out a little bit here, you've invested in several startup uh, startups, almost a hundred, right? Okay. Right. According to AngelList, um, and they range. You know everything from food to pet supplies to tech and to healthcare as well. How do these opportunities come to you? How do you go about finding them? How do you look for them? So they mostly come to us now, um, which is great. Uh, typically, it's a, a friend of a friend or a, a VC fund that is looking to round out a, a fundraising round with folks who can give kind of like very specific advice to founders. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the nice things about us, I guess, at this point is like we've, we've done it for a while. So there are some very specific tactical pieces of advice I can give someone that, that maybe others couldn't um, during the early stages of a company's life. I think as companies get bigger, my value goes away. And so we tend to invest in what I would think of as like seed and series A companies. So kind of, you know, two to a hundred people mm -hmm. where everything's a little bit on shaky grounds. There's a lot of risk on the table. They're kind of like somewhat always on the cusp of going bankrupt. Um, and so each individual- That's your sweet spot. Yeah, because all of those decisions matter a lot more. Okay. And so you don't have the level of risk. Like you can't make a lot of mistakes because if you make them, you go you go out of business. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the part we, we can help with. And so, so we get introduced through, through folks, probably some folks in this room, which is, which is really great. Uh, and then as we build up our network of companies we've invested in, you know, those founders will introduce us to people right. um, as well. The network effect yeah. then. Yeah. So in the early days of Flatiron, you and Nat invested in several health tech companies so you could essentially learn from them, you know, yep. see how things work. Um, do you ever have conflicts of interest in the companies that you invest in? I mean, and if so, how, how do you work with that? How do you manage that? Well, if it was competitive with Flatiron, we won't touch it. That, that one's really easy. Do you uh, find stuff that's complementary then? Yeah, if, if it's complimentary, we really do no oncology investing. I, I think we kind of just said, like, even if we're doing the right thing, you could, like, you could twist it, mm -hmm. potentially, to make us look bad, and so it's not worth it, and so let's just not do it. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's an oncology, we probably won't touch it, uh, just because of the perception risk. Uh, if it's in healthcare, but it's not an oncology, that seems like, you know, fair game. Fair game. Um, and there, the conflicts, they come up every once in a while where you've like already invested in one company and then you see another one that kind of looks similar. And so usually what I'll do is I'll check with the founder we've already invested in and just say, hey, we have this opportunity, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And if they're adamant that it's competitive, we just won't do it. And if they say, go ahead, then we'll at least take a look. Um, so we try our best not to do anything that's like directly competitive without somebody's blessing, mm -hmm. essentially. There's nothing, there's no legal document that says we can't. Um, but you know, you're only as good as your reputation, I guess. And yeah. we're trying to be somebody a founder actually wants to like 
take money from. And you know, if you're out there like investing in everyone's com com competitors, uh, the reputation will suffer very quickly. Is there any particular area you're looking at right now or that you are especially interested in at the moment? We always look for something that if it grows, that it gets more defensible over time. So it doesn't mean it's going to work in the first place, and a lot of them don't. But you have to kind of logically reason like, OK, if this thing happens and this thing happens, as they're getting bigger, does it become easier to compete with them or mm -hmm. harder to compete with them? And if it's harder, those are the companies that tend to win in very outsized ways. And so we're, we, we look for that. And typically, that means some type of software component that has like compounding effects. Um, so we're looking for some complicated technology. It doesn't always have to be like really complicated, but just something that's not super easy to do mm -hmm. uh, with some sort of compounding effects. That's about it. You know, not, I think if you try and be like too prescriptive, you'll miss some really good things. Um, and then obviously we look at the founder and you know whoever he or she or they are, um, we will spend more of our time evaluating that person, that person than, than probably the, the business itself. Okay. Because um, so much of this is just driven by the individual. Yeah. And like they're, a lot of them have like a chip on their shoulder. Um, and These some, founders? No. Yeah. It's funny how that works. Um, <laughs> Someone once told them that it can't be done. You know, one of those things. And um, we'll look for someone who, you know, is going to put in the extra effort. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. All right, sounds good. We're going to open things up to the audience. And we've got a roving microphone somewhere. And this gentleman has raised his hand already. If we can bring a microphone to the gentleman in the third row. Thank you. Thanks. Can, can you expand on the kind of advice you give based on your experience, how two smart guys you know, get inroads into big pharma uh, and, you know, what your go-to-market was to actually penetrate the bureaucracy. Yeah. And related to that, starting where you have a, you need a critical mass of data to sell the product. So how do you sell it while you're trying to build your critical mass of data? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll try and tackle at least the first one. Um, so much of, like, being in a startup is storytelling. Uh, I cannot stress how important it is to be very good at crisp, clear communication, because you're talking to these people who have no interest in talking to you mostly, and or have like 900 other things going on. And so they don't understand what you're saying and the way you're describing what you do. They're just not going to pay attention. Um, so we, we, we focus a lot of time with founders on the story itself. Like, pitch it to me, and then I'm going to ask you a 1,000 questions. And those questions, hopefully, will help you find places where you use like ambiguous language. Um, so it's, sometimes it's stupid things, like don't write emails where you say he, she, they, you, like what is the object you are talking about and use that word. Because most of the time people skim. And so if you have anything in, in like an email that can be ambiguous or misunderstood, like get it out. So we, we do little things like that and try and teach people how to write. Um, it, it's not rocket science, it's just like a few little tricks. So we do those kind of things, um, which I think is really important, a lot of founders spend more time on the product, and they don't think of the story, and the story actually sometimes matters more. Um, that's one thing. On the sales side, what I've learned in enterprise sales, at least, is the first deal is the hardest, and then the second deal is like 70% is hard, and then it's like 50%, and then eventually it turns, because now there's social proof that you're not a charlatan, basically. <laughs> uh, 
and you just have to get, when you get to the social proof part, then it gets really easy. But at the beginning is, is really hard. Um, getting so that first customer. First few, let's call it, and then getting them to, to um, provide a good reference. So a lot of it is like relationship building. I used to do this one thing that uh, I would always try and get somebody's phone number so I could text them. And the theory goes that if you're like in a formal setting, you know, you're doing a call or uh, a pitch or whatever in a conference room, everybody's like very buttoned up and they're not gonna tell you what they really feel. But if you can catch that person outside of work, you'll usually get a lot more truth than mm -hmm. you would get in the meeting, especially when they're not around their coworkers. So we would always look for ways to like get somebody's cell phone number and then come up with an excuse to text them. <laughs> and I felt like the text relationship would bring the seriousness of it down. And then as a result, I could ask them questions that they probably normally wouldn't answer. So we used to do, so you can steal this trick. Uh, I used to like set up conference calls with people and then send them an email five minutes beforehand saying, hey, I'm running late. Can I text you when I'm available? You can just call myself. <laughs> Works like a charm. Because who's going to say no, right? Like no one's going to be like, no, sorry, just send me, like 95% of people send you their cell phone number. And then, so we would text them and say, hey, we're ready. You know, can I just call you on your cell? Uh, and then afterwards, I would send like a thank you mm -hmm. um, over text and maybe like a follow-up question or something. And the idea was to like break down the barriers that people put between each other. Um, make it more casual, make it almost something where you're already in conversation and yes. it's gonna happen on its own. None of this stuff or scales, game. right? Like yeah. you couldn't do that for a thousand deals. It's not gonna work, but you don't need to. Mm -hmm. You just kind of need to do it for like the first five and then you can drop the whole text thing and, <laughs> and do, you can do like more scalable stuff. Um, but that kind of stuff actually really works, right? Because you build trust and you build credibility. Um, it doesn't get you the deal per se, but it definitely shaves time off of this. And, and we, we, we did that a lot. Um, Great advice. Yeah. Next question uh, from this gentleman over here in the front row. Hi, uh, my name is Levi. I would like your advice about how do you start in a, trying to do something in the healthcare industry, something big, and everybody's scared because it's a very conservative uh, industry. So what's your advice how to get in and how to, to knock down some doors? I mean, the best advice I can give anybody is you have to learn how it works first. Um, it is messy and complicated and a lot of it doesn't make sense because it's, there's like a rule somewhere that you just have to know exists um, and those aren't always published in a clear way. So the best thing we ever did is we found a few people who were expert in the area and we made friends with them and we would like buy them dinner and we would just go like pepper them with questions and get uh, to learn the system, right? Even just the words, you know, what is Medicare versus Medicare Advantage? Uh, you know, what is a CPT code? Like little things that people will toss out assuming you know it, and most folks don't. And so, and I, we definitely didn't. Um, and just kind of like getting some of the basics down. And, and then from that point, if you understand how the system and the players and the rules work, I think finding the idea gets to be a lot easier. But most people don't understand how any of this stuff truly works. Uh, after all of it, I, 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 there are, I think there are two types of founders. There's the founders that like can come up with ideas and like they just are really good at it. I was never that person. I, I can't. I, I have to talk to people. 
Um, so my way of learning has always been face-to-face. -face. I just like, I, I cannot come up with ideas on my own. And so for me, it was like talk to someone, come up with an idea, pitch it to them, hear what they have to say, pitch it again, pitch it again. You know, we, we, would, we were selling. Even if we didn't have anything built, we were like at least pitching the idea and seeing what the reactions were. Um, so the ultimate idea becomes very collaborative because it's done with the input of all these experts that you've recruited, essentially. Yeah, and you have to kind of translate what they tell you because they don't exactly say it all the same way. Yeah. But you're looking for patterns. You're looking for like multiple people saying the same thing, mm -hmm. um, both positive or negative. Um, and then you know you build your confidence up that like, hey, this thing seems to have legs because when I was pitching the idea before this, everyone told me it wouldn't work, and now I'm pitching this thing and people seem to be a little more positive about it. So they're like, not saying no yet. <laughs> they're kind of like, all right, maybe there's something here. Uh -huh. um, and that was our process. And it took, you know, it took a while, a really long time. Uh, right over here. Hi, it, this is fascinating. How important was it to bring a subject matter expert on board and at what level of the company Good question. does he or she? In, in, in healthcare, I think it's really, Critical is actually probably the biggest mistake we made, one of the mistakes, but definitely like top two, let's call it, was we didn't hire an oncologist um, early enough. We kind of waited, they're expensive, um, they're hard to recruit, and so it just, there's a lot of friction to going about getting it done, and so I think we waited too long. Um, I, I think in, especially in healthcare, you, you, you need somebody who's like sitting next to you when you don't understand something to just say, hey, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. um, and ideally, you find an expert who is uh, an educator, not a lecturer. And that's really hard, because most experts tend to want to lecture. Um, so you really got to find the person who's like, I find, so I'll give you the habit. I, I noticed that I think it, like you can tell the, these people apart very quickly. Uh, educators tend to stop and go, does that make sense? or like clarify the words that they're using or, or, de or define them. And then the lecturer is just kind of like ramble, ramble on. In, in like a one-on-one -on -one setting. Um, I think that's like a really simple rubric of, am I gonna learn anything from this person on a consistent basis or am I gonna have to stop them all the time and be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? So we, we looked for, for those folks and they're hard to find. They really are hard to find. Um, our CMO that we hired, this woman, Amy Abernethy was great just took a very long time to find her um, and then to convince her to, to join yeah what's the other big mistake you made I would uh, this is gonna sound weird uh, I don't think we should have built the entire company in New York uh, really? where, where should you have built it then remote I think we should have like I think we should have had a, a, a home base in New York mm -hmm. with like core talent that it was in the creative roles that you need really early on. And then we should have like worked the muscle of how to have remote employees a lot sooner than we did mm -hmm. um, because it's really expensive. Mm. And like just not more complicated than that. It is very expensive. You are competing with companies that are the most profitable businesses in the world ever. Mm -hmm. Not like now, just like in the history of companies, these are the most profitable companies we've ever seen and you're competing with them for talent, it's just like, it feels like you're, it's not a game I would like to play again. Yeah. So I would have had more folks um, all across the globe, but working from home um, earlier than, than we did. 
And if you don't stretch that muscle early on, it's, it gets harder to do it. Mm. You have like all these processes you have to unwind and you have to introduce the concept of like video conferencing uh, and people aren't used to it. I, if I were starting something again, when I was like 25 people, maybe 20, I would have like a serious plan to hire folks not in the office. Interesting. Yeah, because they're cheaper. Okay, well, Zach Weinberg, thank you so much. Um, Zach joining us today, co-founder, president, and CEO of Flatiron Health. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.